Welcome to Chip Chat Network Insights, conversations exploring network transformation through interviews with industry experts. Welcome to Chip Chat Network Insights. My name is Allison Klein. We're coming to you from the International Broadcasting Conference in Amsterdam, and I'm delighted to be joined by Mark Dunton, Director of Sales for EMEA at Smart Embedded Computing. Welcome, Mark. Hi. So, Mark, our companies have a long history of collaboration, but why don't you introduce Smart Embedded Computing and um, the area of focus that you have in the industry? Thanks. Uh, Smart Embedded Computing is the new name for artisan embedded computing. Uh, and we've had a lot of heritage here in embedded computing. Um, so we were previously Motorola uh, Computer Group. We brought in companies like Force Computers, Blue Wave. So we have a very long history in embedded computing and our DNA is in that area. Now I know that the topic for the day is cloud gaming. And this is a very interesting area of visual cloud in terms of the evolution of cloud gaming and what um, infrastructure providers as well as service providers are looking at to evolve the cloud gaming experience. Can you provide a perspective on the cloud gaming market today and where we're going in terms of the types of games and the types of experiences we're trying to put in the hands of consumers? Yeah, um, I think cloud gaming is a very exciting new area for the visual cloud. Um, I think cloud gaming has suffered in the past. Uh, it's got a bit of a bad reputation. We've been try it's been trying to break through in the cloud in the cloud space. We've obviously seen the cloudification of video and audio. Cloud gaming is the obvious next step for cloudification. Previously, the service providers have been trying to maximize the value of the infrastructure they've been bringing. But with uh, cloud, uh, with audio and video, unfortunately for them, uh, players got to the market before they did, and they weren't be able, to, able to capitalize on the infrastructure. And with cloud gaming, this is a chance, another, another opportunity, another market where they can perhaps break through and get some revenue there for the infrastructure they have to invest. When you look at the average cloud gamer, what is the experience that that cloud gamer is, is seeking? And how does that differentiate from a traditional gamer that is engaged on a console? Right. So... Uh, um, the, main, the main inhibiting factor to cloud gaming up to this point has been the latency issues associated with, with the cloud. Um, and the new developments in network technology, uh, fiber to the home, fiber to the curb, 5G, will allow uh, the latency issues to be solved in a, in, in a much easier way. Um, so cloud gaming now is rife for... It, so the infrastructure is rife for implementation of cloud gaming. Now, it's, it's an interesting parallel that you bring up in, um, in terms of OTT content providers delivering video and uh, cloud gaming providers delivering um, gaming experiences. And, uh, and the underlying infrastructure is also somewhat similar. How do you see cloud gaming as unique um, when you look at it as compared to um, video streaming or OTT video services? Yeah, I think the latency is the uniqueness there. I think it's that need with, with video, with audio, it doesn't matter that the latency of the network is an important factor. Mm -hmm. If you go to the network and access a video or access audio, you can, you can withstand a small amount of buffering at the front end while that video audio comes down to you and then you, you don't notice that buffering. With cloud gaming, it's very important that as you make a move on your console or you make a move on your, your controller, that's, that's actioned in the network and you can see it directly. And that's part of the enhanced gaming, well, it's part of the key gaming experience, really. So when you uh, look under the covers, what are the key technology attributes 
that are going into cloud gaming systems that address that particular issue? Well, it's, that's mostly a network issue, but in terms of the equipment side, uh, the, important, the important parts there are density, uh, cost per player effectively for the, for the, for the service provider, uh, and also uh, typical power uh, budgets and things like that, that that count for people who are putting information, uh, putting infrastructure into data centers. So dense and efficient platforms mixed with a low latency network yeah. uh, that we're achieving um, with network transformations yeah. spells the success for cloud gaming. Exactly, yeah. And I think the other thing that you need there, obviously, is you need the games. Mm-hmm. There's no point having all the infrastructure and all the capability there in the network, um, but then not have the games to play. And I think there's been a reluctance on some of the game studios to try and maintain their core business of selling games as a physical asset rather than a cloud asset. Mm -hmm. So as we move forwards, we're starting to see the studios realize that this is probably going to happen anyway, whether they like it or not. So they need to get on board with this and they need to move to a cloud-based delivery model. So I think that's one of the key issues as well is we're starting to see now, you know, our our partner GameStream, they've they've got... uh, Pro Evolution Soccer, for example, now available as, as a cloud game platform, uh, a, a game available to play on the cloud, which is an unusual, which is a breakthrough for those guys. Now, Mark, you guys are delivering some really innovative platforms right. to the marketplace um, to address this particular need. Tell me about what you've uh, delivered here at IBC. Right. So what we're showing at IBC is we've got a, a dual Cabulate G uh, PCIe card. So typically the Cabulate G processor that we're using, which is the lower power version, is capable of playing uh, two AAA games on a single processor or a single system on a chip at one time. Uh, We've got two of those on a PCIe card, so we're getting four games per PCIe card. And then what we have is we have a 15-slot PCIe chassis, which gives you effectively 60 games in a a a 4U uh, chassis there. So that's quite a powerful, dense server that you can fit in. Now, if you look at the uh, typical... Uh, implementation rates of cloud services uh, for every subscriber that's actually playing the game, there's probably around 20 subscribers that aren't playing the game. So that one system can therefore support around 1,200 gamers at one time. That's fantastic. Um, Now, I've done a little research, but I'm just um, enough to be dangerous. Tell me how this compares to the typical platforms that have been deployed historically for this use case? Right. So typically a, a, a server, uh, a white box server with a graphics card would be able to play six, six to seven games. Uh, and when I'm talking about two games, I'm talking about 1080p AAA games here. So I'm not talking about 720p lower end games. I'm talking top, top level games. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're looking at a density factor there, an increase of probably, I don't know, around 15x, something like that in terms of space saving there. And, and also because of the fact that we're using one set of power supplies, one set of fans, the infrastructure costs and the infrastructure overheads are much lower as well. So you're not, but you're not, you're not having the whole system there to play the game. Uh, you've, you've got a common support for the infrastructure there. That's a fantastic innovation at the edge. What has the customer response been so far? It's been very good, yeah. I think we're still in the early stages of, try- of customers seeing the excitement of the technology and then trying to work out how do they actually utilize this, can they roll it out. But there's been, you know, in the, in the Middle East, there's been uh, some take-up there. We're seeing a lot of interest from the American carriers who are trying to work out how do they get into this marketplace. Um, yeah, so we are seeing significant take-up. Now, I know this was a 
collaboration with Intel and, and part of the long history of collaboration between our companies. Right. Tell me about how the teams work together to deliver this unique solution to the marketplace. Yeah, so we're, we're very often early adopters for Intel chips. We usually get the chips uh, before anybody else or before the, the general market release. We generally work with Intel during the debug phase. This was particularly true in this case. Uh, this is a very complicated design, obviously, having effectively a graphics chip, some memory subsystems, and the CPU all on one chip. Uh, and trying to maximize the power budget between the various elements was quite a challenging effort. But we worked with uh, your guys directly. We had in, uh, engineers in both places and visiting both places, collaborating on getting the design working. So, yeah, it was a very, very close collaboration to get this going. Very nice. And then, you know, you, you talked about, I believe it was 1,200 uh, gamers per box. Yeah. Um, put that in context with the amount of gamers that uh, a service like GameStream is addressing in the marketplace and where this is growing in terms of Well, I think uh, if, you look at the, if you look at the gaming market, you know, it's, it's an enormous market. The gaming market itself as a market is bigger than both the audio and the video market put together. So that gives you some context of the amount of dollars that are spent on this. Now, how much of that game, how much of that market is available for cloud gaming? We, we don't know at this point in time. We, we suspect it's very, very high. There'll always be a core level of gamers who want to continue playing games on their PC, who like that high end, you know, I've got to build it and have the fastest thing possible. But I think a few of them work at Intel. <laughs> yeah. I think you're probably right. Mm -hmm. um, but there's definitely a casual gaming market there. The, and a retro gaming market, which is just rife for people uh, to, you know, subscription services where people will dip in and dip out of games that probably, you know, were available 20, 30 years ago, as well as latest titles uh, in the same way that audio, Spotify, for example, you know, there's far more listening to back catalogue than there is listening to new stuff on Spotify. Very nice. I, I think that we can see where this is going, especially if you're delivering at 1080p, you're delivering a high fidelity experience to the game, the gamer that's going to be an enriching experience. And the other really exciting thing about cloud gaming is the gaming on any piece of glass aspect. Mm -hmm. So at the moment, pretty much gaming is confined to either a PC screen or a TV screen. And if you buy a t console, then you're confined to the TV screen. If you buy your games on a PC, you're confined to the PC screen. What cloud gaming allows is it allows you to actually switch your gaming plane of, gla plane of glass or your gaming uh, the device you're using for gaming. Um, at will, so you can be playing a game on on your on your on your large 58-inch screen at home. You can pause that game, and you can you can t continue that game on your on your iPhone in the car. The same game through the same service. So that portability, that 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 ability to move your game to which pane of glass you're actually using at that point in time, I think is quite a compelling thing as well. That's very exciting, Mark. I can't wait to hear more about how this uh, solution gains traction in the marketplace. We'd love to have you back sometime. In the meantime, um, can you just provide a URL where folks can find out more about the platform yeah. and what else you guys are doing? Yeah, so Smart Embedded, uh, new URL is um, smartembedded.com. You can find out about our products there. Uh, great for you to have a look. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you. Welcome to Chip Chat Network Insights. My name is Allison Klein. We're coming to you from the International Broadcasting Conference in Amsterdam, and I am delighted to be joined by Dr. Uwanis Kachuvinidis, research scientist with a video infrastructure at Facebook. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Allison. 
So why don't we just get started and talk about video infrastructure at Facebook and how this shows up um, to users of Facebook in terms of the experiences on this platform. Yeah, actually, that's one of the uh, interesting parts about our work. It doesn't actually show up on the users because they still see their device, but we are the people behind the scenes. So every time that you upload a video, an instance in our data center wakes up, starts processing it, transcoding it, and making it available for your friends and family to watch on the other side. We are the people in the middle. Mm -hmm. So we are the ones that make everything work end to end. What has been the trend since the early days of Facebook to today in terms of the amount of video content and the percentage of content that's uploaded, uploaded to Facebook that is video in nature? Actually, it's been growing uh, exponentially almost. We started from zero and very quickly it became one of the most uh, important media for our members to use to the point that today it dominates any other kind of format because also of the volume of video. So right now it is uh, by far the most important medium. And obviously um, Facebook users have a particular um, expectation for experience, whether they're loading um, text, photos, or video. How do you look at that as a challenge? And, and what are the things that you need to be thinking about in terms of how you support that vi rich video content? Yeah, this is actually a great question. Um, because of the sheer volume of the media that we need to process, we need to make very good choices and, and trade-offs. So we cannot spend too much time in processing it in order to extract the very last bit. But at the same time, we need to make sure quality is very good so that the people on the other side who are watching it do not experience anything that they don't like. So it's a battle that we play between making it quick enough, but also very good. And can you put some perspective in terms of the amount of scale that we're talking about? I mean, everybody's heard about the billions of Facebook users, but how much video content are we really uh, discussing? We are not uh, actually giving exact numbers, but uh, the billion is the keyword here because everything is multiplied by this factor. Mm -hmm. And if you simply account for every user just uploading a video every week, which some users do more, some users do less, it actually accounts to multiple terabytes of data. And that is a daily flow that we need to process make it uh, available to our members and at the same time archive it for mm -hmm. further usage. So it is a massive scale problem that we're facing. Now we're at the International Broadcasting Conference, of course, and really I almost think that the, the conference needs a new name because what we're talking about is um, online video distribution or video sharing. Um, what is the trend in the industry in terms of addressing this massive growth in video and how we can manage um, the scale of delivery with high quality. That's actually one of the biggest challenges that our industry is facing today as a whole. Um, video is transforming from the old model of broadcasting, where there was a TV station that was sending to millions of uh, simultaneous viewers, what we also like to call linear video, to on-demand video. People are used to and accustomed to always receiving the video they want whenever they want it. This model and this transformation from the previous linear to the on-demand model is changing the industry. That's why people are no longer attached to their old TV, but they like other media. Uh, that's why we are also facing that uh, challenge. Um, new technologies have emerged that make it happen. Mm -hmm. It goes without saying that there would be no internet distribution of video if there was no internet. 
So the underlying infrastructure that we all, when I say all, I mean Facebook, YouTube, Netflix, Amazon, and anybody else who is streaming video today is utilizing. So any evolution on the internet uh, connectivity point of view will directly benefit and multiply the usage of video as we see it. So on one hand, we all need to make sure we are aligned and take advantage of the communication front. On the other side, uh, improvements on the video encoding side allows us to spend less and less bits mm -hmm. in order for us to achieve the same quality. So it's a uh, combined effort on the communication and compression side that makes video so uh, important today. Yesterday at the conference, I ran into a number of people that talked about historically how video encoding has been one of the toughest challenges for the industry uh, to get their hands around. Um, but there is some new technology entering the market that can help. Tell me about that. Yes. Uh, first, first of all, we all need to understand that uh, the majority of the services I just mentioned, and for sure Facebook, is relying on what I call modern video encoding. Modern video encoding involves newer video codecs, mm -hmm. um, such as AVC, even though it's 10, almost 15 years old, it's still considered a modern codec, VP9, and recently AV1. So AV1 is the newest uh, video coding uh, standard. It's a standard that was developed last year. It hasn't been fully deployed yet, but we and our partners, uh, Intel is one of them, feel very strongly about the potential that this can bring to further improve the quality of videos. All of this is done, uh, or I should say the majority of this encoding is done in software in our data centers. Mm -hmm. So that has allowed us to make big jumps in quality. Mm -hmm. And that is a trend that I see staying in the industry overall. And again, with the adoption of AV1, we'll be able to see higher qualities of video or lower bit rates, which allows people to reach more and more members. Now, I know that this is something that's been developed in the open source arena. Why is that so critical? That's very important. And actually, yesterday's opening remarks at the Visual Cloud conference, I made a point that open source has been a catalyst for a number of developers, not only in video coding, but in the broad tech industry. Uh, it allowed a quick evolution of standards. Mm -hmm. So if you see how uh, the old standard I mentioned, AVC, started in 2004 by a group of great experts, but it was really transformed and made practical by the open source community. So the fact that today pretty much everybody is using AVC for their encoding is because X264, another open source project, uh, evolved and became so good. The same trend I see happening in AV1. Mm -hmm. AV1 being open source means everybody can contribute to make it even better. And we have seen how in the last six months, the SVT AV1, which is one project that actually Intel has started, and LibOEM, the reference encoder uh, that uh, all of the members of the Alliance for Open Media used to develop, has improved by a lot, both in terms of speed of execution and savings of bits. If this trend continues, which I'm very positive it will, it will make everyone even more important and successful. Now, AV1 was a huge uh, step in the right direction. What else do you think the industry needs to tackle and where would you like the open source community to continue its focus in terms of pushing codecs further? As I've said, we need to make 
codex not just be very good, and many people associate the word good in saving bits, but you also need to make sure it covers all the use cases. You need to be able to encode what we call VOD, video on demand, offline. Imagine you upload your video and a few minutes later it becomes available, but also the live use case. Live has many uh, additional constraints. You can no longer process time and time again. Uh, you have uh, strict requirements on how quickly you have to do things. And to do that, you're trading off some of the quality that eventually can come up for this real-time requirement. Mm -hmm. So in order to be able to encode both live and VOD very efficiently, you need to develop different tools and different compromises. It's impossible for any single person or company to do all that. So it is actually spreading and making, the, making sure that the entire range of applications is addressed by everyone, the next big challenge for the open source community. I can't wait to hear about how you collectively work together to push forward. I can only begin to imagine the task that you and the team have at Facebook in terms of the scale and scope of videos. You'll be happy to know that I've added a few more to the pile since I've been in Amsterdam for my friends and family on my own Facebook page. You did very well. Thank you so much for being on the program today. It was a real pleasure. Thank you. Welcome to Chip Chat Network Insights. My name is Allison Klein. We're coming to you from the International Broadcast Conference in Amsterdam, and I'm delighted to be joined by Lionel Adam, Vice President of Sales and Business Development at GameStream. Welcome to the program, Lionel. Hi, welcome, Allison. So we've talked, we've talked about GameStream a lot at Intel, and um, you guys are doing some very innovative things, but we haven't had you on the program before, so can you just introduce GameStream and your role at the company? Yeah, sure. So um, basically, GameStream uh, is a company, is a very young company, a startup company. Uh, we are delivering a turnkey white label uh, cloud game streaming solution to the communication service provider and also to the hospitality business. So that's uh, overall the activity that we have. And I'm in charge of all the sales and business uh, development activities of game, GameStream. Now, gaming is very well understood. But as we look at the, the umbrella of gaming, where would you define cloud gaming as a part of that umbrella? Yeah, so um, cloud gaming is, uh, is, well, it's quite new, but it's also a few years now that we have heard about cloud gaming. There has been different uh, people trying to enter this kind of uh, delivery method. Basically, that's a new way of delivering uh, content and in particular gaming to the, to the consumer mm -hmm. uh, where you will uh, not need anymore any console, any PC. You just can play the game directly from the cloud. So no download, no more CD, no more consoles. Hopefully tomorrow, no more Chromecast as well. And mm -hmm. you can just click and play uh, from, from your uh, preferred device, basically. So you don't need any specific device. You don't need a very high-end uh, machine to play. Mm -hmm. You don't need to buy the content, or uh, you can, in some cases, uh, buy a la carte content, but everything is played in the cloud directly uh, from, from some uh, GPU uh, located there and streamed in terms of video streaming. So basically, that's a video streaming uh, distribution for, for gaming. Now, 
any gamer knows that latency can mean yeah. death. Yeah. So tell me about what has um, evolved from a technology standpoint that has allowed the the entry of cloud gaming um, in terms of an, a new era of, of gaming experience? Yeah, that, that's the, a very good question. And I think that's the difference between the, the, the experience in the past and uh, the trend that we can see today. Uh, there are two things. First, in terms of uh, technology, uh, the network has really evolved in the past uh, decades, uh, going from, uh, I would say, um, entry-level kind of broadband access to very high-speed broadband access. So today, a lot of people have access to fiber. Uh, there is Doxys 3.1 for cable. Uh, we are re hearing a lot about the 5G connectivity, which is bringing also very low latency. And all those new type of connectivity are bringing, bringing basically the bandwidth and the latency that is necessary uh, to, to, to do cloud gaming. So that's the first step. And the second step is uh, probably the, the capability from the cloud uh, to play the games themselves. Uh, one of the big uh, topic and issue that we have to face when we are doing cloud gaming is to maximize the number of sessions that we can play from the cloud. So in the past, it was quite difficult to, to scale, so to deliver at scale uh, cloud gaming experience. Uh, today, with the new generation of GPUs and with all the competition also uh, between the Intels and the competitors, this is there is a lot of emulation and the GPU power is really going up and also uh, because of uh, the other market like uh, artificial intelligence, like uh, AI or autonomous uh, driving, for example, this is driving the, the GPU hub. Uh, so today we have the capability to scale in the cloud uh, from a GPU perspective. So these are the two main aspects that make the difference between uh, what we used to have in the past and the first attempt to deliver cloud gaming, which um, in, some, in, some, in some cases failed. And what we see today with a, a big trend uh, from, from GameStream, but also a lot of big players like Microsoft, like, uh, like Google, obviously, with, with Stadia, mm -hmm. uh, they, they are all uh, believing that right now is really the, 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 the key starting point for, for cloud gaming. Now, I know GameStream has been early in market and driving innovation in this market, working with another, a number of providers. You've also been working with Intel in terms of the delivery of, of core capabilities. Tell me about why um, you chose to partner with Intel and, and what is that partnership focused on? So the, the partnership with Intel is focused mainly, uh, as I mentioned, on the hardware part that we put into the cloud. So basically, uh, the, the latest generation of Intel uh, cards uh, like KBLG or the new Celestica uh, allows to bring um, this, uh, this computation uh, power that you need to play even multiple games on one single GPU. So today we are able, for example, in one KBLG to host two sessions of, of player in 1080p60. So that's basically the way we can bring uh, the scale uh, to our solution. So it's really key for us to be partner with someone like Intel because of these core assets. And also our team is really going deep, di deep down into the, the architecture uh, of the GPU and the cloud. We are completely mastering the ecosystem from end to end uh, with the, the engineer going at the, at the driver level. And our engineers are, are directly uh, talking and working with the Intel engineering team to optimize the process we can play and encode uh, the video st streams, basically. 
So it's not just the, you know, we hand over some hardware and, and wish you luck. We're working no, together no, no, to no. make sure that that thing well, runs it, very it well. Well, it would never work like yeah. that because uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it's something that really requires some optimization, uh, specific uh, work on the software side to be adapted on the hardware. So that's a mix of, of software and hardware. All the software is coming from GameStream, but basically we are using the drivers, drivers from Intel and the team are really optimizing everything at every steps. And, and one big step forward is also, uh, for example, working on Celestica, <coughs> sorry, uh, to, to, um, to virtualize uh, this environment. And here, once again, this is a close collaboration between the teams in Intel and in GameStream that makes this, uh, this happen. So I know that this is a new announcement at the International Broadcasting Conference, um, this collaboration on, on this particular yep. uh, system. Tell me about the density that was achieved and what that means in terms of the number of streams of uh, games that you can support compared to what was possible before. Sure. So, so basically, uh, working on the new generation of uh, of chipsets, uh, and also with some some partner that we have for the integration, because obviously you need someone to build the hardware from the chipset. That's not only the chipset, but also uh, the density comes from how many chipsets you can put in a server and how many server you can put in a rack. Uh, basically, with our partner, which we, who are also partner from Intel. Uh, we can reach, for example, 5,000 customers per rack. Wow! So that's 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 a massive improvement compared to uh, the first attempt, where uh, it was really a very low number per rack, uh, which makes uh, today a viable solution from a commercial standpoint. Yeah, it sounds like that you're getting into the cost dynamics where this becomes very um, fruitful at scale. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's the starting point. And as you know, uh, um, from from the silicone industry, this is uh, always uh, pushing uh, the, the, the computation power higher and higher. So we expect that this will probably double uh, in, in one year from now. So um, we think that today we have a viable solution, but the economics will be still better in the future. That's fantastic. Uh, so that's, that's really, uh, the, I think the trend is there for the cloud gaming and the starting point is really now because all the, the different aspects uh, from network, GPU and everything are, are there to, to meet the requirements. Now, now that you've got this solution in market, um, I know you mentioned hospitality, um, you know, different types of service providers. Where are you seeing the most acute interest in um, providers delivering cloud gaming experiences and in this is this a worldwide trend or is is there um, specific markets where this is uh, most exciting yeah we well because of the the, the network constraint we we focus i would say uh, on the high-end market from a network standpoint so it's more the advanced markets uh, european u.s market and and some asian market uh, but there are some countries where, where the network is not still there if you go to africa if you go to some countries here sure. and there you don't get the the the, the bandwidth, the bandwidth yeah, yeah sure so so that's, that's just not possible. So that's something we are working on also with the next generation of codecs to try to improve the bandwidth uh, requirement. So for example, uh, H.265 versus H.264, we are managing um, roughly, I would say, 40% improvement in terms of bandwidth. So that's something, that this is huge, but still you cannot address all the markets. Having said that, um, well, hospitality and network service provider are very different markets. Uh, I truly believe that the, the, the communication service provider are a key to the deployment 
especially because they are really controlling and managing the service. Mm -hmm. So today that's where uh, I think the real business is for us, is to bring this white label solution uh, to the network service provider. We can really provide uh, the quality of experience, quality of the network, and, and be in charge and in control of uh, the experience of the end user overall. So that's that's more or less what we see. And today, to give an example uh, of deployment, we are deployed in, in the Emirates with mm -hmm. uh, Etisalat in Dubai and Abu Dhabi. We are deployed in, in uh, Indonesia with Telecom Indonesia also. So we see the difference between those two markets. Obviously, uh, the network is, is much more complex in Indonesia and the constraints are, are more complex. But still, uh, the network service provider can provide uh, data centers uh, to distribute the ecosystem uh, in, in all the places. So that's key for us to have someone like that who can manage these aspects to deliver the, the solution. That's fantastic. I'm very excited to see how this rolls out over the next few years, Lionel. We'd love to have you back on the program soon um, when you can share more about these new platforms and their deployment. But before we do that, I just have one more question for you. Where can folks uh, find out more information about GameStream and engage with you guys? Well, we are present on all the, the, the social networks. We, we have, uh, we have uh, LinkedIn, uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram uh, channels. So you, you can find us there. Uh, we are looking for GameStream. Uh, we have also our website, uh, gamestream.com. So you can, you can go there and, uh, and have more information and then contact us uh, if you are looking for a solution, obviously. Fantastic. Thank you so much for being on the program today. Thank you, Alison. Thank you. Welcome to Chip Chat Network Insights. My name is Allison Klein. We're coming to you from the International Broadcasting Conference in Amsterdam, and I'm joined by Will Law, Chief Architect of Media Cloud Engineering at Akamai Technologies. Welcome to the program, Will. <laughs> Good morning and welcome. So Akamai is um, in the heart of uh, content delivery and media cloud, but tell me about what your specific role is at the company and um, what you're delivering for Akamai. So I work in, in the media division at Akamai, and we're, we're a large CDN, and it you know, used to be CDN was, was the cloud on your diagram, and we simply move files one place to another. And we, tr we still do a lot of traditional web delivery, but now we have a very quickly growing security division as well, because we realized our network's actually in a, in a very good position to uh, apply safety features and security for web content. And then there's the web division, which is the one I'm, I'm in. That's the one responsible for the vast majority of the traffic that we're moving over our network. You, you talk about vast traffic. I mean, the statistics about the growth of video on the internet are astounding. How is that reflected in Akamai's business? So we see it directly. So I, I told an interesting anecdote on, on stage yesterday. So I think in the year 2000 or 2001, we hit one gigabit per second across our network. Mm -hmm. And people were enthralled because this was the days of 56K modems. And a gigabit sounded like an awful lot of traffic. Mm -hmm. um, we just said two months ago, our, our network uh, peak record was 80 terabits per second. Wow. That is an 80,000-fold growth 
in 19 or 18 years, which is a tremendous growth. And you think of what, what other business or industry or any sort of logistics corporation handles a growth of 80,000 times and still functions. And, and even more amazing is the protocols and the distribution scheme we used back in 2000 are essentially very much similar to what we're using today. So HTTP and the internet as a distribution mechanism is highly scalable. I know a lot of people in the broadcast industry question the ability of the internet to scale up to deliver UHD to every home in the world. But the fact that we could, in 2000, if I had told you, we're going to grow 80,000 times, you'd probably shake your head and say no. And then if today I tell you from 80 terabits, if we're going to grow 80,000 times in the next 20 years, we, it's equally incredulous. But it's, it's, it's a linear growth map, and it's, it's rational. So I think the Internet's a great foundation for distributing content. It's evolving. We go from HTTP 1 to HTTP 2 today. HTTP 3 is coming up. But, but the fundamentals of transfer and the packetization and segmentation of video as a delivery mechanism, that's proven to scale quite dramatically. Akamai was at the middle of a very interesting demonstration at IBC talking about pushing the, the limits of what's capa capable um, over the Internet, an 8K VR real-time streaming demonstration that involved Akamai, Intel, and some other companies. Tell me about why this was something that was interesting for you to get involved in. Well, we left out two buzzwords, blockchain and AI, so I'm just <laughs> joking. Um, it, was a, it, it was a very interesting project. So it's a long-time partner of ours, which is Tiled Media. And they're, they're looking at the challenge of how do you, how do you represent a, in a virtual environment remotely? So we, we had a, a speaking session yesterday on the stage, and we wanted people around the world to feel like they were in the audience. And this is, this is new for events, but it's a very common idea for sports. You want to be in the front seat in the basketball game or, or anywhere else. So you need very high quality to do that because there's a instead of just representing a small square of the world, you've got to represent the entirety of the sphere in, in which you're sitting. So they had two, uh, two 8K cameras. You could choose the view. And they were outputting video at 240 megabits per second from the show floor here in Amsterdam in, uh, using uh, Intel-powered uh, servers to do a prim primarily primary layer of encoding. That goes up to Akamai ingest servers, six different ingest servers we used. And then we distribute that media over our distribution network. And then people around the world could tune in and watch it on a VR headset. And what they watch is a, is a 4K subset of the 8K produced image. Wow. So we're not streaming 8K to everybody, but as you, what we do is take an equirectangular view of the... We, we, we wrap the world into a flat sheet that's 8K in size and turn it into a grid. And this is Tiled Media's approach. And that grid, every item on the grid has a low quality and a high quality image. And I'm simplifying it dramatically here, so Tiled Media can correct me later. And then as you put on the headset, the headset's figuring out which, which portion of the grid you're looking at at any one time. And for the portion in your field of view, it's pulling the high quality tiles. And then it's pulling low quality tiles for the rest. So that as you move your head, it shows you a quick rendering of the low quality, so it's instant, and then it replaces it with the high quality as you move around. So our job as a CDN is very challenging. We have to get that high quality tile to the headset within 65 milliseconds. Wow. And they need actually a 25 millisecond time to start rendering the first frame. So we're dealing in delays now that are in the same order of magnitude as the round trip time of a TCP packet. So it's, getting, it's, it's really pushing the boundaries of streaming. And it worked. So people were sitting in California watching us. Now it's not so exciting to watch a group of guys on 
men and women, sorry, on, on stage mm -hmm. talking. But you extrapolate that out to sports, entertainment, concerts, uh, Formula One racing. You know, if you can be in the driver's car and look around in real time while he's racing, that's pretty cool. That is very cool. When you look at um, what Akamai is delivering for clients, how far off are we from this demonstration to bringing this into the mainstream in terms of experiences like you've just described? So, yeah, people say, oh, you can't deliver 8K to everybody. That is entirely true today. <laughs> we can't. But we can certainly deliver 8K and, and 4K to a good subset of the Internet. And that, that's, that's the beauty of the Internet. It's not like a broadcast commitment, which is everyone must get everything or they can't get anything. With, with adaptive media, I can deliver 100, 200 kilobit videos to people on a mobile phone in Indonesia, and I can be delivering 8K streams to somebody in Stockholm. Uh, so we have the ability to detect the level of connectivity that they have and deliver an appropriate entertainment experience to them. So a lot of people today, the, the threshold for, for UHD and 4K is, is reaching mainstream adoption. There's a, probably more than half the people in a major city can comfortably receive uh, a 4K stream right now. And I'm talking 4K encoded in HEVC, which would be 12 to 18 megabits per second. So... It's, it's a reality, and the beauty is if you don't have the bandwidth to get 4K, we can give you 1080, 720, 640, 360. We can work our way down and give, deliver you the best experience you can get at this point in time. So to get there, it seems like you need to be able to deliver that low latency at scale. And what is Akamai doing in terms of investing in the, you know, the edge um, network deployments uh, to make this happen and and yeah. and to deliver that type of compute <coughs> capability. So that's at the really edge. what separates Akamai from all other CDNs. So a lot of CDNs will, excuse me, tell you how many pops they have, points of presence, the 20, 30, 40, or 50 around the world. Akamai has roughly 2,300, and it changes every month. So we are deeply deployed inside every ISP in the world. And our goal is to have our, our edge network as close to the end user, your home, wherever you are, as, or your work, as possible. And that's expensive. It's, it's far cheaper to put 100,000 servers in a warehouse in Denver and serve the United States. Right. But the round-trip time's higher. And... One of the challenges uh, for media delivery is to reduce the round-trip time because with TCP, your throughput is a function of the distance you're having to travel, the packets, the number of hops. So by shortening the distance to the edge server, we remove some of the congestion that's there and we can deliver higher throughput. With higher throughput comes better quality experiences. Now, obviously, this is reflective of a long history of collaboration between Akamai and Intel. Why is that partnership important to Akamai? So, you know, we use a lot of Intel-based CPUs on our network. And I'm not in our platform division, who are the ones who orchestrate the, the hardware partnerships. Our platform team provides the platform, and then we as the media division get to use it. Uh, so I'm, I'm separated from the hardware selection side, but I do know that we, we run Intel across the board. We, we use a lot of uh, CPU, and the trend now is to start leveraging GPU as well for processing. We're not doing a lot of that in media because we're not actually encoding content within our edge. So we're trying to focus on the delivery side. And for us, memory and other metrics like bits per watt is very interesting. Bits per watt is... is now, it's not formally defined, but it's a rough measure of how many bits can I output from a server while consuming a certain quantity of power. And we're very sensitive to how much power we use because it's one of our biggest operating expenses. After people, I think electricity and, and, and actually buying bandwidth are our two other largest costs. 
And if you look at our network output, as I mentioned, it, it grows. So it's been, it's been growing 30 40% a year going up. But you look at our power consumption for the last five years, it's flat to down. So that means we're getting more efficient. With every watt of power consumed, we can output more bits to the end user. And that's a function of the efficiency uh, of the CPUs that we're finding and, and, and the systems that are incorporated in the servers. When you look forward and you think about what you've seen at IBC and what you've been talking about with other folks in the industry, where do you see us in a few years in that trend of the... Um, macro growth that you just described since 2001 and where we need to go in the future? So the, it's not, you know, if you look at a dramatic statement, it's not going to be it. The next three years will look pretty much like it is now, but the video quality is going to be better. We are really starting to finesse QOE, quality of experience for end users now. And people were very tolerant of buffering because it was the internet. But that's not the case today. People are very surprised if their television has any sort of interruption nowadays. And we are, we are seeking that, that five nines level of reliability in the internet, and we're starting to implement mechanisms. So your, your video is going to start almost instantly. It's going to look awesome on no matter what device you're on, and it's not going to rebuffer. And those are all absolute statements, and everyone can offer anecdotes as to why that isn't the case today. But rather than we're going to be surrounded by VR video all the time in three years, we're not. We're going to mostly consume an awful lot of 2D, but it's going to look great, it's going to sound great, um, and it's going to be a buffer-free experience. And that, you know, that's the work we're doing, is to make that happen. And to make it happen, there's thousands of little things. There's no silver bullet. If we do that, media just works. You know, it doesn't. In fact, there's a thousand reasons why it doesn't want to <laughs> play nicely for you. We have to knock them off one by one. Very nice. Well, it's been an interesting conversation. Uh, uh, I've learned a lot about where the trends are going. And I've always been interested in Akamai's business. You've, you've provided a nice uh, view on what you guys are doing with media. Where can find, folks find out more information about Akamai and engage with the team? Our website, www.akamai.com. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for being here today. You're welcome. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Welcome to ChipChat Network Insights. My name's Allison Klein, and today we're coming to you from the International Broadcasting Conference in Amsterdam. I've got three guests with us. Uh, first guest is Glenn Gaynor, president of Innovation Studios for Sto Sony Entertainment and Technology. Second guest is Robin Tarafelli, managing director of media and entertainment at Deloitte Digital. And the third guest is Gary Radburn, Director of Virtualization and Commercial AR and VR at Dell. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. Here. So Glenn, why don't we just start with you and talk about um, your role at Sony Entertainment and what it represents in terms of Sony's larger pursuit of delivery of um, different media. Yeah. So I'm at Sony Pictures Entertainment and... Uh, I oversee the uh, motion pictures for one of our movie labels, and uh, I'm head of Sony Innovation Studios. Uh, essentially, I've been a storyteller for many, many years. I've been producing pictures, overseeing the making of motion pictures, and now overseeing our new entertainment and technology division, Sony Innovation Studios. It's essentially here to empower story through technology, 
because now more than ever, technology is such a critical part of our ability to tell stories. So as a filmmaker, one of the biggest challenges that I've been faced with has always been going to location. And l let me delve into that because I, I, I adore going to locations. Uh, I've been blessed to have shot films from Abu Dhabi to the south of France to downtown LA and all around the world. However, sometimes you can't get to all of those locations. Uh, and so the idea here is that we can collapse geography and bring locations to one stage. The way you can do that is to virtualize these locations. But I'm also a stickler for representing reality as best as possible because film is a, a visceral interpretation. We used to call it suspension of disbelief. But if someone is taken out of a story, it's always hard to get them back into a story. So we came up with the idea to create a virtual set. And the virtual set is made out of points, not pixels, meaning that it's representative of the points around us, right? If you look at anything physical, we, it's made out of atoms, which are points. So we go out and do a volumetric image acquisition of real assets. We sample the real world, and then through our software called AtomView, we're able to process that real world. So eventually, if you want to, you can create a virtual set. And that's what I mean by collapsing geography. So you can actually be in a virtual set, film in it, game in it, make a TV show, whatever the case might be. Glenn, when you, when you think about what you've just described, um, you've had to, as an industry, be, been on the forefront of utilizing technology to create the capability of delivering a virtual set and balancing the telling of stories with the use of technology. Where are we on that journey, and how transparent is that to the creators at this point? You know, creators are always looking for opportunities to tell the story in the best way possible. And so this is yet another tool in their uh, bag of tricks so that they can say, okay, well, how can I achieve something? Um, there's, there's a great sense of veracity you get when you're on location. Like I always like to say, the, the scene with Dustin Hoffman in Midnight Cowboy, where he's almost hit by a car and he says, hey, hey, I'm walking here, right? It's a great organic moment that occurred. However, what if you couldn't get to that location? What if you uh, said, you know, I've got a TV show or a movie and it's 90% in this location, but it's 10% in this other location that's unachievable. So that's where you can go to the filmmaker and say, well, let's hold on a second, guys. We can get you there. Uh, you have to think about it. Right now, the assets are not um, wide and far because it's emerging technology. But as we're able to get a software out there to uh, our colleagues, planet-wide, you'll have people being able to capture and sample the real world so we'll have more opportunities. Now, Gary, obviously Dell is a leader in technology, um, providing the underlying infrastructure um, for the virtual sets that Glenn has described. Tell me and walk me through um, the technical challenge uh, to deliver um, something transparent for the creative community. 
Yeah, great question. Uh, it was it was a great opportunity to partner with Sony Innovation Studios to be able to do this. Uh, we've been in 360 video all the way through the creation of VR and now as it organically grows to volumetric, each stage presents different challenges along the way. The one with volumetric is how do you get all of that acquisition of data into a place which you can actually then use and edit to, to Glenn's point of going through the software, capturing all the points, going through that software, creating the endpoint. And it sounds counterintuitive, but we try to take technology out of the equation. It shouldn't get in the way of the creative process. So you want to make things as simple as possible, as quick as possible, and as sturdy as possible as you go through. So from the acquisition of the data, uh, all the way in through to masses and masses of storage of that data. You then take that through into the servers, you then crunch that data, bring it down to something that you can now edit, and you bring that through into the workflow when you then go into the, the precision workstation side, which is the, the Dell side, uh, where we can actually then process all of that data inside of there to create the end piece. The, the great thing about it is that now we've got all of this workflow through and we can share that with other people, it's a case of you're allowing other people to now tell their story, and I like to call it the democratization of the industry, so that filmmakers who haven't had the capabilities or the knowledge or the wherewithal to be able to do that can now see that it's really a simple process as it goes through because we've done it and we've documented it, and now other people can actually use that in their storytelling that they want to as well. Glenn, when you, when you hear that described, one thing that comes to mind to me is going back to your concept of place, that you open up the field of um, creators in a, a diverse locations to actually work together on a, a single project as well. Are you seeing that as an evolution of how Sony is using this technology? Yeah, I do. I do. You know, it's, the, it's that phrase you hear, you know, um, think globally, work locally. Uh, and you know there there's so much opportunity uh, globally, uh, but it's the accessibility that becomes the challenge. And um, we want to be able to connect the world of global artists so that people can be empowered to tell those kinds of stories that are critical to the fabric of storytelling and humanity and so forth and so on. Um, that's where technology comes in to help all of us. Technology, as we know, is um, something that, brings people together. It's, uh, it wants to be inherently neutral uh, and be empowered by individuals who say, you know what I can do with this would be this and so forth and so on. So we want to be open-minded about the opportunities. You know, in the movie television industry, I know exactly what we need. And so I have, uh, with, with fellow industry uh, colleagues, crafted our needs. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I know as well that there's going to be so many other opportunities because this, this empowerment tool is all about giving people choices that didn't exist before. Uh, it's, it's like, you know, when uh, we've switched from the film apparatus cameras to the digital cameras, to the larger body apparatus cameras, to the smaller body apparatus cameras, you know, all of these are your tool sets. And the right tool to make your film, movie, uh, television show is the tool you have accessible to you. So we want to make this more accessible eventually. Can I, can I just jump in there as well? Because one, one of the things that we see as well as the, you know, we say storytelling, everybody has a story to tell, whether it be in commercial, whether it be in film, whether it be in entertainment. But one of the things we've actually discussed um, before is things like historical monuments. If you take into 
well, if you look at what's happened recently, right, there's been some pretty much disasters in Notre Dame, for instance, uh, Brazilian museums, you know, that are disappearing and not being held for future generation. Imagine if you could use the technology to actually capture that inside of that and record that for posterity, so they can then wander around it later on and still see history as it was preserved digitally inside a volumetric format. And it's also things like that outside of the entertainment medium that become very, very exciting because you're now recording things for future generations that perhaps they might not have got to see. Now, Robin, I want to bring you into the conversation because I know you're working at looking at this type of technology and how it can apply across many industries. Can you give some perspective on that? Yes, thanks, of course. So um, when we were approached by Sony to come in as into the partnership, it was very exciting for us um, to see not only the application that the volumetric scan has within uh, traditional film and television, but expanding outside to the enterprise. So I see tremendous application um, in life sciences, automotive, um, retail, just the choices, the the opportunities around those um, individual sectors alone has had um, us having many conversations, and I see that this that it has just tremendous impact in that space. When you um, talk to companies within those fields, um, where do you think we are in terms of? Is this, are these nascent opportunities, or do you feel like different industries are well on their way of understanding how to use this rich content? I think the concept of volumetric is it's 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 in its infancy. Mm-hmm. I think it's growing, and I think people are becoming more and more aware of it. The more conversations I have, the more aware they're becoming of it. And I think um, given the fact that we are having these rich conversations and really having the dialogue around this and the ideation sessions around this, it's really helping us um, realize what the potential of the volumetric scan could be. Now, Glenn, from a, going back to the concept of storytelling, when we unlock volumetric image acquisition, what does it allow you as a storyteller to do differently that you weren't able to do before? And how does that translate into the experience for the viewer? Uh, I'm going to answer the last part because that's the most critical question, the experience for the viewer. Uh, the viewer will not know that he or she is in a virtual set. Um, you know, I'm a a member of the Academy and, and oftentimes during the award seasons I'll attend the animated motion picture screenings and watch the, the nominated films. And I learned this philosophy from one of our great animators that um, when you're in a story such as animation and you have the audience and you do something wrong, you take them out of that story because it's an artificial world, it's so hard to get them back into the story. Now, storytellers in general, that's our job is to keep you in the story. And so when you look at what we're achieving with the volumetric image acquisition and our ability to be in that virtual set, we are putting filmmakers in a space that really is a virtual reality. Think about virtual reality and how we're consuming it today. A lot of it's animated. A lot of it is, is pixelated or what have you. It's not reality. We are talking reality because it's of the point. It's not meshed points. It's not a bunch of points that are reinterpreted. We are not reinterpreting real life. We are capturing and sampling that real world environment. So now when you go to film it, and I use that vernacular film, of course, but when you capture it, if you're shooting it on a Sony 6K Venice camera, 
you're actually able to have now a 6K world around you. Because as we do this volumetric image acquisition, we put it in a mezzanine asset that's like a moving 30K. That's important because as you go from a wide shot to a close-up of something in the virtual set, your close-up still in 4K and those points are still accurately representing the sampled world. How far away are we from uh, full-length motion pictures delivered on a virtual set? Well, again, the audience isn't going to know. This is the craftsperson uh, making choices. Now, there are te there's a television show that we help, uh, and they shoot, uh, it's called Shark Tank in the US, and we shoot the exit interview set in a virtual set. The contestants are, are walking in, and they are still in their moment. They're looking at the camera. Uh, it's just that around them is not a physical set, it's rather a virtual set. For Men in Black, we uh, were able to capture Men in Black's headquarters that was shot at Leavesden Studios in London, and uh, that roughly 50,000 square foot soundstage was captured by the volumetric image acquisition. It was processed by Atomview. It was then exported accordingly so that we could shoot in headquarters three commercials for Men in Black. And it is absolutely as if you were there. That's the, that's the trick. The end result is a flawless end result. That's another area of, a fo of focus for Deloitte is I see tremendous application and just the, f the pure commercial aspect of creating commercials and, and, and in, in the volume. That makes perfect sense. Um, now, I have to ask, Gary, um, at Intel, this sounds like a tremendous opportunity to apply compute capability as well as um, uh, code optimizations to a very challenging problem. How, how have we worked together to deliver um, the best performance uh, to push this solution as far as it can be pushed? Wow. Uh, yeah. So the um, I mean the products involve Dell PowerEdge servers, obviously containing uh, the the Intel chips inside of there, the CPUs. Uh, that's given us the processing performance we actually need. We're taking the data from the backend Isilon, which is the storage network there, uh, then being able to get like huge streams of data coming through very very efficiently. Uh, the way that we've now got more and more cores where you can parallelize the process, so you get more throughput of that data through there. You're then effectively crunching it far faster than we ever could before. And that's great because data rates never seem to slow down. They, they always increase, like generation on generation for particular technologies. And so therefore you need faster and faster ways of doing that in real time. When you start talking commercial applications, it really is true that time is money. You want to get as fast a throughput as possible. You want to crunch it as fast as possible to get the end result to monetization. If you can do that faster and more efficiently without losing any quality in the process, then that has a real benefit and a real boon. So all of that workflow put together that we did at Dell um, in partnership, then it really does streamline that whole process and really allow, as I said earlier, for the technology just to move out of the way, become transparent and just have this fast process that goes through. Now, Glenn, final question to you. Obviously, you're incredibly passionate about the development of this technology. Where do you see us in a few years in terms of what we're able um, to deliver and what are you most excited about in this experience? Uh, I definitely see us... Um, being able to empower stories in places in the world where those storytellers may have been limited. I was um, 
uh, just delivering a keynote speech in Western Australia for Cinefest Oz. And, um, you know, in that part of the world, uh, they've got wonderful artists and great storytellers, but they oftentimes are limited to the kinds of stories they can tell. And I spoke to some great filmmakers who came up to me later and they said, so hold on a second, am I not crazy? Can I get my script made? that had me in these four different locations that aren't accessible to me in Western Australia. And I said, well, uh, eventually, yes, you will. And that was really heartwarming for me because think of the stories that are coming out that we nominate as best feature films. They're not always the major motion picture. They oftentimes are those so-called independent films, or sometimes we call them a one-quadrant film, but they're films of valuable um, importance to the fabric of society and, and to representing different approaches and ideas and philosophies. There are stories that want to be told that can't be told. And I'm very excited to see us evolve through point cloud technology to allow people to get those stories told. This is incredibly exciting. Thank you, Glenn, Robin, and Gary for being on the program today and sharing this exciting story with us. Yeah, our pleasure. Thank you. Thanks. Welcome to Chip Chat Network Insights. My name is Allison Klein. We're coming to you from the International Broadcasting Conference in Amsterdam. And I'm delighted to be joined by Stephen Shaw, Business Development Director at Iconic Engine, and Rob Coonan, Founder and CBO of Tiled Media. Thank you. Welcome to both of you. Stephen, why don't we start uh, with you and just introduce um, Iconic Engine. Give us a little bit of background on the company. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, thanks for having me. Um, Iconic Engine, um, we've been around for a year. We were born out of Digital Domain, um, a huge um, sort of LA international sort of global SFX studio. Um, and now primarily we're responsible for um, immersive content and production experiences um, in the worlds of XR, 360, virtual reality and the like. And Rob, Tiled Media is an, uh, a name familiar to me with from uh, Intel collaborations, but tell me a little bit about the, cl- uh, the company and what you're delivering in the market. Sure. Uh, so we've been around for three years. Um, we got bootstrapped out of a Dutch research organization. And what we do is basically we deliver personal uh, experiences coming from very high resolution content. And it sounds really abstract, but uh, <laughs> if we can talk about VR. We, make, we enable extremely high quality uh, virtual reality. So why don't we just start with the question of where we are um, with virtual reality. And you know, this has been something that has been in development for a number of years, um, gaining more and more traction. Stephen, why don't we start with you and, and your perspective on uh, the technology's adoption um, in more broad um, applications. Yeah, for sure. I mean, interestingly, my background started off in augmented, more traditional mobile augmented reality. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been in the sort of VR space for um, realistically probably the, the last three years. Mm-hmm. So I came at this industry very much as a consumer. Um, and I think the usual um, sort of well-cited barriers of um, sort of, uh, you know, sort of consumer um, sort of hardware pricing uh, were traditional barriers. And then 
then obviously why we're here today, more about the actual quality of content and the qualitative distribution of content. Um, we just didn't have the scalable tools and technologies that the likes of Tiled and ourselves offer these days. So we're slowly opening up and removing these barriers one by one. Stephen has talked about barriers. Rob, one of the things that I've I've seen is you know challenges in terms of being able to deliver that rich content in a way that can be consumed um, in a scalable fashion. How has Tiled Media taken a look at that challenge? Yeah, let's go back to the question we asked Stephen first, which is yeah. where is VR at this point? I think VR was incredibly popular three years ago. It was a huge hype. And I think there's been a bit of disappointment because uh, the concept is great. Being immersed in a, in a, in a virtual environment is, is wonderful. So be, be somewhere else. But the quality has been so low. Mm -hmm. And what we're showing now at, uh, at IBC is that we can deliver much higher quality virtual reality by only basically sending people what they see and not everything else around them. And this is a, a little bit of a difficult technology, but if I can be a little bit technical, you have all these pixels around you if you're in a VR headset, but you're only seeing like one-eighth of all these pixels. And traditional methods deliver all these pixels at huge bandwidth, and you have to decode everything at huge battery cost in your mobile phone or in your, in your headset, and then you're only seeing a small part of it. So what we do here with Intel, what we did yesterday with our broadcast, and even today with our broadcast, is that we use this technology where we only deliver what people see, and we make this massively scalable. And we think that this is a way that we can reignite the interest in, in VR. And we're actually seeing that happen. We're seeing a lot of people coming back and saying, OK, if I can deliver 8K VR, now it becomes interesting to me. Now I want to do something with it. Now I want to broadcast my soccer, my soccer match or uh, my, um, my MotoGP or something uh, with VR. And what you referred to in terms of this demonstration is the world's first, the first 8K 360 virtual reality experience that was broadcast at IBC, um, an incredible collaboration of a number of companies. How did this come about, Stephen? Uh, well, we were kindly introduced. Uh, we worked with uh, Rob and the Tiled Media team, so we were kindly introduced to the project um, via Rob um, a few weeks ago, and uh, we've sort of amazingly managed to turn this round in a, probably a space of around sort of six to four weeks. So we're delighted to be part of this. Uh, if I could provide a little bit of background, uh, mm -hmm. Alison. It's, um, so we were on a call with Intel, and we were talking about the Visual Cloud Conference, and uh, Intel had asked us if we would, uh, we would do a talk and then we said, uh, well, maybe why don't we stream this whole thing in 8K VR? Mm -hmm. And then, okay, uh, Intel thought it was a good idea. So and then we started to collect people that could help us. So we, we recruited the help of Google because it requires quite a bit of processing. We recruited the help of Akamai because it needs to be distributed. We recruited the help of the local telecom operator because we needed uh, quite a bit of upload bandwidth to the cloud. And this is, uh, and then we recruited the help of Iconic Engine, really, because we needed uh, an attractive app. And I know uh, Iconic Engine does much more than just building apps, but th they were able to build this into a very nice app, and that's how it came about. IBC helped out also, so there was nine partners in all that all came together, brought to the table technology that exists today. I think this is really important. It was the world f world's first. But all the technologies to enable it exist today. So the message yesterday and today is also you can, you can do this too if you want. Mm -hmm. This can be bought in the market. Now this um, stemmed from an earlier collaboration between Tiled and Media, Tiled Media and Intel um, at Mobile World Congress. 
Yeah, we've been actually working with Intel uh, for longer than that. Mobile World Congress goes back to February this year. We were at IBC together last year. Mm -hmm. uh, Intel has been incredible in, uh, in uh, adjusting or adapting its uh, encoding technology to make it suitable for tiling because it requires some specific changes in a video encoder. And Intel has done that and um, for us and have been incredibly helpful. And here we are in uh, enabling this world's first. Now, uh, I, I am smart enough to understand what you mean by tiling, but barely. And I'm sure the some of the audience is not familiar with it. Why don't you walk through what you mean by tiling and, and how that relates to what we've been able to open up? Yeah, that's a good question. So I, I, I think I was already alluding to the fact that we're only seeing one eighth of the picture if we're in a VR headset. So what we do is we take all these pixels, we cut them up in tiles, and uh, at the resolution that we worked yesterday, there are about 100 of these tiles, and then we only stream the tiles that are in your view. So maybe that's about 16 tiles. Mm -hmm. and, and these all get encoded individually, and then uh, basically the client retrieves the tiles that are in the view and decodes them and puts them in the view of the, of the viewer. That's basically the short, the short explanation. So it's cutting up a huge amount of pixels, a huge picture in tiles, and then only delivering the tiles that you see. That's fantastic. Now, Stephen, um, Rob mentioned that Iconic was pulled in because we needed a great app. Um, tell me what he's talking about in terms of what you've delivered. Well, we offer, I mean, we're a content, um, sort of immersive VR content production company, um, but also as well as the production, we offer a suite of distribution tools, which includes um, our XR distribution platform, mm -hmm. uh, which is effectively a content management system, which comes with a suite of um, SDK and applications. Um, so we can enable a one to all mobile and headset platforms um, via our suite. So we've essentially wrapped up this amazing um, sort of 8K live broadcast um, into an app across Android, iOS, and Oculus Go platforms. Now, let's just break this down. So you've got a, a, a foundation of Intel technology and Intel software tools to help make this happen. We've got the tiled media and iconic engine um, software uh, creating this environment, and Google, Akamai, our local telecom and, and others I, at IBC helping us create this end-to-end -end experience. And it was delivered at the Intel Visual Cloud Conference yesterday. Um, it's actually still being delivered today because we, we do the next four days, we will broadcast from the Future Trends Theater. Oh, that's fantastic. So if people worldwide are interested in learning about future trends, they can download the IBC 360 live application on these platforms and they could just tune in to the conference. That's fantastic. You mentioned, Rob, that this is something that has spurred a lot of conversation in terms of, okay, you guys have delivered this. It's with technology that exists today. How can I make this a reality for X application? What are the X applications that you're hearing about? Yeah, we're hearing about sports. We're hearing about music. Uh, this is the first time we did a conference that you could be uh, present at, but it's, it starts with entertainment and, and, and it stretches out from there to, uh, to more professional use cases. And uh, there's a lot of sports I don't, uh, I won't mention them all, but uh, mm -hmm. it's just being present at an event. That's it. And uh, what we've done yesterday is interesting in the, in the, in the sense that we've, we didn't just have a stream from a conference. We also gave the user from the app 
the option to select from multiple cameras so they could choose their own point of view, which is what you could do when a, on a football field too. You just go stand wherever you like. You can be in among the fans. You can be behind the goal line. Wherever you put up a camera, you can be in places that people don't usually can come. They can't usually come, like uh, when the players enter the field, for instance, you could put up a camera. And that's as a remote fan, that's all you can be. You can feel present in all these locations. That actually made me pretty excited about what you guys are doing. Um, what have you been hearing from folks at the conference, Stephen, in terms of interest in the iconic engine and what you're delivering to the market? Oh, it's without doubt it's stimulated sort of huge discussion. Um, I think you know this sort of these sort of like platforms and technologies may have been around but this is like one of the first well it is the world first live use case of a broadcast in 8k um and you know a whole host of parties um here have expressed an interest in um sort of you know working with all of us again moving forward and as rob was alluding to as an la business um based uh, headquartered business um we've worked on live events in the past with the likes of the oscars and red carpets on the grammys giving the end user um, a ticket or a, a space on the red carpet that they couldn't otherwise achieve and um, that previously that was all pre-recorded and then just released via the app on as, as vod now we can do that live and it's it's just it's That's hugely exciting yeah. Yeah, it's a game changer yeah so what is the message to the industry from you guys in terms of what is required to make this ubiquitous because obviously the technology exists but it took leaders in um XR technology like Iconic Engine and Tiled Media working with some industry titans and in, in the names that you threw out to actually make it happen here at IBC. So what do we need to see in terms of the industry working together to deliver this into all the experiences that you've talked about? I think it needs titans of the industry. You know, it needs the Intels, the Akamai's, and then also the specialists such as Tiled Media and ourselves, Iconic Engine. Um, it needs this collaborative um, effort really to showcase this. Um, I kind of like it. It might sound a bit cheesy, but you know, for, for Frontier thinking projects such as this, um, we, we're all test pilots, so we're kind of all needing to learn as we move along um, for these sort of world-first projects. Um, and it takes the intels of this world, and you know, to actually sort of open up these doors for us as well. And it's, it's amazing exposure for Iconic Engine um, to be part of it. I think it takes. Uh, it also takes a vision. It takes visionary people that can imagine the future, and which which is all much more uh, seamless than it is today. And just people that see that this is the way that one day it's normal. One day it will be normal to go to a concert or to or to a sports game this way. And these are the first steps that start to enable this. And it takes people, service providers, people with sports rights, with music rights. It takes people to see the potential and to say, okay. I'm seeing it's now possible, the technology now exists, let's just start doing it. And then we need the headsets, the virtual reality headsets, but they, they will come, they won't come overnight, but they, they slowly, uh, the, uh, the penetration of these headsets keeps growing, they keep getting lighter, they keep getting better, they keep getting higher resolution. Because when we say 8K people, some people may think 8K, who needs 8K? 4K is already too much, but if you do VR, it really makes a visible difference. Sure. You need 8K. If you do 4K, it's too low resolution. So, but now the ecosystem exists. It takes people to, with that vision to say, okay, I will start investing in this future for my consumers. Very exciting stuff, guys. Congratulations on this huge milestone. And uh, I know that this was a 
fast collaboration and uh, a lot of hard work. So thank you for all of your efforts to bring this to IBC. Um, one final question for both of you. If folks want to engage with your companies and talk more about this, um, where would you send them for more information and engage with your team? Rob, why, why don't you go first? Uh, it's simple. Go to tiledmedia.com. So it's just one word, tiled media, and that's where all the information is and the contact details are there too. And Stephen? Thanks, Alison. Likewise, um, please uh, reach out to us at iconicengine.com. And um, for those who haven't already downloaded the app on iOS, Android, or Oculus Go, please search hashtag um, IBC360 Live um, to download the app and see our collective glorious work in uh, <laughs> full 8K vision. Yeah, for four more days, we'll be streaming from the future Trends Theatre, so everybody could still be part of the experience globally. Sounds fantastic. Thank you so much for being on the show today. I can't wait to see more from you guys. Well, thanks for having us, Ellison. It's great. Welcome to Chip Chat Network Insights. My name is Allison Klein. We're coming to you from the International Broadcasting Conference in Amsterdam. And I'm with Remy Bedouin from ATEM uh, here. And, and Remy, welcome to the program. Thank you. Welcome, Alison. So Remy, why don't you go ahead and just introduce ATEM to the audience and, and the focus of your company as it relates to the topic of IBC. Sure. So at ATEM, we do provide uh, software video compression and delivery solutions. We help broadcasters, content providers, service providers, new medias to transform their video operation and services. We especially make sure that they can uh, lower the total cost of ownership for launching or distributing channels while enabling new services like 5G, over-the-top services, but also main screen delivery. Now, compression of content has been a, a very um, popular topic at IBC this year. Why is it such a focus for the industry? It's a focus because when you look at the industry, uh, content is there. There are more and more content everywhere. The connectivity is there. Uh, meaning that you have 4G network, tomorrow 5G network to enable UHD, you have DSL, FTTH, satellite, you have connectivity all over the world. We have devices to consume these. The goal of compression is actually to make sure that you can transmit as much channel, as much content as possible on a given pipe. Because even though the connectivity is increasing, at some point, your pipe of connection is the same. And so the value added of ATEM is to make sure that we can maintain high quality, broadcast quality, like you have at home or on any screen, and we can lower the bitrate. If we do that, we enable the service providers, the content providers, to transmit more channel. If they can transmit more channel, they can reach an highest audience. Mm -hmm. Now, you have delivered a solution called Titan to to the industry. Tell me about Titan and how it's differentiated in terms of what's available on the market today. So Titan is a pure software uh, module suite, if I may say. Uh, it's not one product. It's more a family of modules, all software-based, all hardware agnostic, that you can deploy on-premises, off-premises, in the cloud, public or private. We cover all the operations of content providers and service providers acquisition, decoding, transcoding, delivery, packaging. Uh, it's different in a way that, unlike others, we control the full technology. We develop everything in-house, all based on standard, nothing proprietary. 
And so we enable uh, broadcasters by having the best performance in terms of density, in terms of what we can call pixel per watt, so the best performing solution, best compression, as we control the technology, we can save any bits and so make sure that the people can deploy our solution and lower the cost of transmission. Last but not least, it's a unique solution to address any type of link, any type of transmission, any type of network and devices. Uh, in the past or in some other uh, competitors, you may have one solution for satellite, one solution for OTT, one solution for contribution, one solution for distribution. We have everything on the same family so that uh, people can uh, deploy converging solutions to address their various needs. You know, I think one thing that's really important to think about is that just a few years ago, the kinds of capabilities that you were describing were built into uh, stovepipe fixed function boxes that were very proprietary, and you're moving that into uh, an industry standard uh, fashion uh, with a lot of flexibility. I would assume that's a value to your customer base. It is a value. I mean, the, the broadcast industry has been or is being cloudified. Uh, we, as you said, uh, 10 years ago, five years ago, a few years ago, uh, the industry used to deploy silos, hardware, proprietary solutions. Uh, now the industry with a big eye requests uh, flexibility, scalability, uh, cost reduction. And so they are looking forward to deploy uh, uh, solutions, software solutions on off-the-shelf server. And this is where uh, our partnership with Itel is key. Uh, we are optimizing our solutions to get the best performance on the Intel uh, CPU family. Now, let's talk about that a little bit. And obviously, um, we're providing a foundation of silicon for these solutions, but um, the collaboration goes even farther than that in terms of looking at your software to take advantage of that underlying hardware. Tell me about that collaboration. When you look at video compression, video compression, it's all about computation. It's mathematical. We have to produce, to, to, to do the best compression, we have to do a lot of computation. To do a lot of computation, we need to have a deep dive access to the CPU uh, level, to the instructions, x86 or sometimes hardware accelerations so that we can increase the number of uh, computation and get the best performance. And so talking to uh, Intel people, to talking to Intel tech team, enable us to get the best performance. And what does that translate in terms of value to the customer when you do those optimizations? Uh, lowering the cost of infrastructure because if we got a performing solution, for instance, we can uh, process more channel on a given server, mm -hmm. we lower the total cost of ownership. Instead of having uh, 10 channel on one server, we can enable 15 channel. Um, when we have access to uh, low level SDK or low level instruction of Intel, we can do more computation. If we can do more computation, we can lower the bitrate. If we lower the bitrate, we enable our customers to lower the cost of transmission. Mm -hmm. Now, you've talked about the, the confluence of satellite, cable, IPTV in one solution or, or suite of solutions with Titan. Um, we're seeing a tremendous amount of disruption in this particular part of the industry in terms of OTT providers, people delivering content in different ways, um, merging of, of different types of providers into a unified front. How does your solution address all of that macro change in the industry? And how do you have a solution that really scales as people start getting into different aspects of the business? Um, it's true that the 
the lines between the type of customers are becoming a bit blurred. Uh, in the past, you used to have content providers and then service providers. Content providers were licensing their content to service providers that were distributing this content. Now, with Over the Top, um, everything is more blurry because you have service providers becoming content providers, you have, co you have content providers going over the top. Uh, the common factor for us is that they are all looking forward for having a converging solution. So they are all looking forward to say, okay, I want to have one solution. I can't stand having multiple solutions. I need to have a converging solution. And this is why uh, we have launched the Titan several years ago. It's to answer that question for flexibility, scalability, and convergence. Now we enter IVC um, for 2019. It's always a great litmus test to see where the industry is and where the industry is going. What have you noticed on the show floor and in your business meetings here in terms of the progress towards the cladification of content delivery and content development? And, and where do you think the industry is going as we head into an, the next year? Uh, the, the cloudification is there. I mean, no brainer. Uh, then, as I said, you can mention it, whether it's private, public, on-premises, off-premises, but everybody is talking about I want to deploy cloud operation and I want to leverage the flexibility of having a software-based architecture. Um, I think now that if we move forward, moving forward, the next step is, I think, to offer an, an enhanced and more intelligent experience. Like I said, we have tremendous content, we have the connectivity, uh, we have the devices, um, we have multiple services going over the top. I think the next step is maybe uh, to enable more a la carte or more personalized television. Um, I read a study last week saying that, uh, in average, SVOD users can spend up to 17 minutes to select the content. <laughs> Even with recommendation and so on, they, they can spend tremendous amount of time. It's not sustainable. It's not sustainable for the user, but it's not sustainable for uh, the service provider or the content provider because at some point, you lose an opportunity. If you lose 70 minutes a day to select a content, at some point you will be bored. And I think that there is an opportunity to reinvent uh, the television where we have a bit of a passive experience. You go on a channel, but more personalized to have uh, the Alison channel created on the fly tailored to your need and tailored to, to your taste. I totally need the Allison channel, Remy. Get working on that right away. I, I think that I may be above the bell curve in terms of the 17 minutes that you talked about. Um, thank you so much for being on the program today. It's, it's really interesting to see what you guys are doing, and we love the collaboration with Intel to take advantage of our underlying technology. One final question for you. Um, if folks want to find out about Atem and learn more about the software you're delivering and engage with your team, where would you send them? Uh, we have a website, of course, www.atem.com, where we have uh, all latest news, press releases, white paper uh, about our technologies. Fantastic. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you.